Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, friends, I have something to talk about today that I think is really important. Um, It's kind of been coming up in my world personally, and it's also come up in my world professionally. And so I want to talk about the fact that corrections in training do not actually equal power for the trainer. And maybe a better way to say that is that there that we can feel empowered by positive reinforcement-based training if we understand it well enough. And if we allow it to work for us the way that we know that it can. Um, you know, and by we, I mean anybody who is training a dog for any given reason. So if you are, like myself, a crossover trainer, I'm not in love with that label, but basically what that means is that when I first learned how to train dogs, I used a lot of corrections, mostly physical corrections. Um, I used corrections for all kinds of things. So not just things like aggression, but things like breaking a stay or... um, you know, pulling on the leash or barking or, you know, whatever else. I just, my go-to was to use a correction because that's what I was taught initially as far as behavioral management. Uh, The positive reinforcement-based training that I was taught had to do with competition behaviors. So teaching um, competitive obedience and agility behaviors, that's where positive reinforcement came in. But utilizing corrections for behavior management was still a huge part of what I was doing um, up until about, I would say, 15-ish years ago. Um, And understand that when I first put up the corrections and put up the corrective tools, I felt what I'm seeing a lot of people feel which is a kind of lack of power over my circumstances. So meaning before, when the dog did a, didn't do the thing I said, the answer was to make him. Or if he was doing a thing I didn't like, the answer was to make him stop and to use whatever means necessary to make him stop. And that's really empowering for the dog owner and the dog trainer which is why it's really hard to get rid of this stuff. And I want my clients to feel as empowered as I feel now by positive reinforcement. So know that the trainer I am right here right now is a trainer who kind of abides by the humane hierarchy of um, as a kind of guiding principle, meaning that I'm going to start with uh, behavioral wellness always. And then I'm going to go to management next. And this is if I have a behavior problem. And then after 
management, I'm going to go, I'm going to reach for positive reinforcement techniques. And I will have to exhaust a lot of different circumstances, a lot, not circumstances, a lot of different uh, options there with positive reinforcement before I'm going to reach for a correction. And this is all if I'm deliberately making training plans. And now hear me out and understand me. That doesn't mean that I never yell at my dogs. And it doesn't mean that I never get frustrated with my dogs. What it means is that when it comes to a behavior modification plan and a training plan, I'm not planning around my anger and my frustration. And I'm not giving myself permission to do things that are outside my realm of ethics because I know I'll be frustrated. Training should not be super hard for the learner or the trainer. If it is, then frustration will exist. And not only will you be likely to use a correction that was not necessary, but your dog might be doing what we might call corrections um, against you. So your dog might be barking at you or trying to bite you um, when he feels angry or frustrated. And both of your feelings matter in this situation. Both of you deserve help out of that situation. Neither of you deserve to hurt each other. And so, and neither of you get to, basically, as far as I'm concerned in my current um, realm of, of behavioral understanding right now. So if I find myself frustrated with a dog in my house and yelling, I need to do my, have a little self-compassion and step back and say, why are you frustrated right now? And can your frustration be reduced another way? So can your frustration be reduced by training? And I'm going to come back to some specific examples later, but I want to talk about three ways that positive reinforcement training and, an, and a solid understanding of good training techniques, because it's not just about positive reinforcement, you guys, it's about the science of learning and it's about the science of behavior change. So when you understand these things, you're going to get empowerment uh, three different ways. The first one is that you're suddenly going to understand the motivation behind your dog's behavior. And now you're not going to believe any of the malarkey that uh, we may have been taught in the past, like the dog's trying to dominate you. Um, or that the dog is vindictive or manipulative. Or that the dog is doing the obnoxious thing um, just because he likes to. That might be true. But it doesn't help us to put those things in that category. So understand that behavior is always driven by reinforcement. And when you understand that something in the environment is reinforcing the behaviors that you'd like to see go away, then you can really start to flip the switch and say, then how can I drive, how can I channel that reinforcement towards behaviors that I'd rather see? So understanding the motivation behind all behavior, which is just that we are all set up to behave. And if you use a lot of corrections, a lot of corrective techniques, um, you will see an overall reduction in behavior itself because punishment's role is to suppress behavior. So when I see dogs that are quote unquote trained um, with, you know, corrective tools that I might not use, 
what I see is dogs that are simply behaving less, simply doing less because there is less reinforcement flowing towards behavior and there's a lot of suppression behavior of behavior going on. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that that's a nice way for anybody to live. And more importantly than that, I like my dogs to do a lot of stuff. We do dog sports. I want them to be, you know, thinking active minds and I I don't want them to go silent, basically. I, I still want them to be themselves. And so when I understand that the motivation behind behavior is reinforcement, then I can maybe start to channel reinforcement where I want it to go rather than allowing reinforcement to be channeled towards towards behaviors that I don't want to see continue. So the first way that we can feel empowered is to understand motivation and to understand that the dog isn't doing behavior X, if behavior X is a problem, let's say. The dog's not doing behavior X to piss you off, to get back at you, to dominate you, or anything else like that. And he's also not doing behavior X because you're not a good enough leader or a good enough um, alpha or whatever word you want to use. That's just, none of that fits into the science that I've come to understand. Um, And so the second way that we can feel empowered by positive reinforcement training is to understand management's strengths and limitations. So management is what happens when you alter the antecedents. So basically you alter the scenario in which the problem behavior is occurring so that the problem behavior does not occur anymore or occurs less. So it's putting up roadblocks, basically, so that the dog can't do the behavior um, that you would like to see less of. This is a really important part of behavior change. This isn't just, um, this isn't a cop-out. And I think a lot of people feel that way, especially people who are still utilizing a lot of corrections in their training will criticize positive reinforcement-based trainers for utilizing a lot of management techniques like baby gates, leashes, muzzles, long lines. These are all management tools. Um, so let's talk about management and when it's okay to leave it in place forever and when it's not and what management strengths and also limitations actually are. I always like to talk about the kind of two scales. So on one scale, we're looking at how much management is actually needed. So how much restriction on this dog's daily life is actually needed to lessen or eliminate this behavior, okay? So maybe we'll talk about that on a scale of one to 10. 10 being the dog's life is basically shut down. It lives in a crate or on a leash, in a muzzle, that kind of thing. And then one being you put up one baby gate in your house you know, something like that, or you avoid one street or two streets on your daily walk. Um, So we've got very minimal all the way up to very restrictive for both of you. And then I like to look at the other scale, which is risk, with 10 meaning if management fails, somebody's going to die or get seriously hurt. And one being if management fails, you know, maybe the dog... um, gets muddy paw prints on your new carpet, or maybe the dog um, eats a loaf of bread off the counter. So I'm going to call those lower on the scale of risk because nobody's going to die 
Uh, it's just kind of annoying. And at least one of these scales needs to be a low number in order for management solution to be a practical solution. So if the dog needs a ton of management, but if the management fails, nobody dies, then I'm in, I'm in pretty good shape here. Or the dog doesn't need a whole lot of management, but if that little bit of management fails, we're in high risk, then, then that's more, that's practical too. Whereas if they're both at the high end of the scale, now we're, now we're in a zone that's not feeling okay to anybody, um, to me, to the owner, to the, to the dog. And this is a concept I recently discussed with a friend of mine, um, who is working on behavioral assessments in shelters with shelter dogs. And I think that having these kinds of these two scales that need to be considered is really important. And it's basically one of the adoptability um, principles that we can put on dogs in shelters. But management is not modification. So if you understand management's strengths and limitations, then you can also understand when to modify behavior versus just manage for life. And understand that management is always going to be a part of behavior modification. So you're always going to have to put some of that management in first before you dive in and modify. And for me, when to modify versus manage, again, goes back to those scales. So if this is a super high risk situation, I'm going to say you need to go for man- for some modification, not just management. Or if the dog requires a lot of management, you need to go into modification realm because it isn't fair for them to live their lives like that. It's not fair for them to live a restricted life um, just because you didn't dive in and do the modification piece. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day about in uh, inside the household dog directed aggression. And I'm not actually going to link that podcast here um, because I can't endorse all of the recommendations made um, in the podcast. But what I did find interesting was that oftentimes when people are working on specifically that problem, which is a high risk you know, sticky problem, dog on dog aggression in the home, a lot of people will get to the point where the problem is appropriately managed at a livable level and everybody's fine now. And crate and rotate for life might be a livable thing for you in your household. Or it may not be. And I'm going to say whether or not it is has a lot to do with What happens if that management does happen to lapse? So if these dogs have put each other in the hospital before and a lapse in management is going to cause that to happen again, I'm going to say you don't get to skate by and not modify that behavior. But let's say when they fight, nobody gets hurt and they're generally able to interact maybe outside or on walks. It's just the house that's a problem. Then management for life really might be the best answer there. And so understanding what management can do for you and that management is not a cop-out and is often just the best tool for the job is a way to feel empowered by these good training techniques. 
And then the last one, and this is especially for you guys who maybe are crossing over or are learning about positive reinforcement-based training or learning about um, minimally invasive um, positive, or, I'm sorry, behavior intervention techniques, understand this isn't about what you have permission to do or not do in your life. Um, know that you have permission to do what you need to do in the moment to help yourself and your dog kind of get out of dodge. And then recognize that those reactions, so let's say my dog is barking and I want him to be quiet and I maybe clap at him and yell. Um, if that st- solves the barking right then, and then we all move on with our lives, I'm going to say nothing is broken. But if I continue to have a consistent problem with barking, then I need to be aware of the fact that if I'm going to continue to use a correction, which is what that was, then an escalation of that correction is going to be required. So understand this isn't about what you do and do not have permission to do to your dog. Because like I said at the top, I yell as much as a normal person. my dogs in my household. Um, You know, which does not mean that I'm yelling constantly, but it does mean that sometimes I get frustrated and yell. But I'm not comfortable doing much more than that, right? So escalation of that correction is going to be required if the yelling doesn't work. And I don't know about you, but thus far yelling has not been effective (laughs) for me in my life. Um, And when I yell... I'm trying to give myself kind of that self-compassion to say, what do you need right now? Sometimes it's I'm having a chronic pain flare and the dogs are being loud and that's hurting my brain and everything already hurts so I can't have my brain hurt too. And so then I yell. So I just need to give myself some compassion and get out of that situation. But if this is a problem that um, is persistent, like barking in a crate or like uh, busting through doors, I need my dogs to wait to be released out of doors because there are seven of them. And if I release them all at once, um, there's going to be a bloodbath or <laughs> somebody's going to get hurt in another way. Um, somebody's going to get trampled, etc. And so understand that I can yell in those scenarios, but it's not going to fix anything. And I would have to escalate that correction to something I'm not comfortable with in order for that to work. So I need to be smarter and I need to reach for other tools. And I've chosen to flip that and and feel empowered by knowing that it's not about me not being allowed to do something. It's not about me not having permission to do something. It's about me understanding the escalation of correction that will be necessary to change a behavior and knowing about myself that I'm not comfortable escalating the correction in that manner. And therefore, I'm going to reach for something else. I'm going to reach for another tool. I'm going to reach to my understanding of motivation, which was that first empowerment piece I talked about at the top. And I'm going to channel motivation towards the behavior that I want. And then when you do feel like a correction is the best tool for the job, I think that um, my colleagues who are trying our best to employ positive reinforcement-based techniques, and we're trying our best to um, be minimally invasive on our canine learners, understand that a 
quote-unquote correction that feels like it comes from the environment tends to be, in my observations, less relationship damaging than something that, emo- that comes from an emotional place in the human. So this is actually the key problem with yelling. It's not that yelling hurts. For some dogs, yelling might not even be scary. But it damages something inside you when you look at that dog, and it damages something inside them when they look at you. That's why we want to avoid that stuff. It's not because it's scary, painful, mean, not nice. It's because of the damage that it serves to do to your long-term goals. So I like to have the I like to always manipulate the environment, not the dog whenever I can, whenever it's possible to do so. So feeling empowered has to do with the fact that it's not that I don't have permission to use a correction. It's that I'm going to be smart about what it is that I'm doing right here. And so rather than yelling at or nagging at my dog, which I know is not going to be effective unless I escalate it to a point of my discomfort, I'm going to channel the motivators towards the behaviors that I do want to see. And so as an example, I have seven crazy ass herding dogs. (laughs) Two of my dogs are mine and then five belong to my partner, Leslie. And we have different um, standards for dog behavior in the household. And we have different desires for dog behavior in the household. She kind of likes her dogs to be wild and crazy and bouncing off the walls. And I like my dogs to be calm inside the house. So we've had to come to a lot of compromise here. And now that there are so many of them, um, the way that I like to see things go, which is more calm behaviors in the house, has become more and more of a necessity. And so I need them all to be quiet in their crates. And I need them all to release outdoors by name. And because I understand motivation... I can be sure that I'm deliberately reinforcing the behaviors that I want to see. So calm household behaviors that get paid for in my house and they get paid for with food, but also with what I'm going to call life reinforcers, like being allowed to go outside or being allowed to come out of a crate. Um, These things all get paid for frequently. So the calm behaviors might be choosing to lie down on a bed, choosing to be quiet in their in the crate. And I reinforce approximations on that. Young Finnick, he is only, I don't know, eight or nine months old, and he's been a he was a big crate barker the day he arrived. Um, so that's been something we've worked through. And now he can whine but not bark. So he's deliberately choosing not to bark in order to be released from the crate. But there's still some low-level vocalizations coming out of him. And for a while, I'm going to reinforce that because it's what I'm getting. And I reinforce that with the release. Um, Choosing to go lie on a bed probably gets kibble dropped on your head. Um, And then we've got stations everywhere. Choosing to hop on a station gets attention, it gets cookies, it gets good things. And then when I cue you to hop on a station and you wait there, then you get your big stuff. You will get a cookie from the cookie jar or you'll, or you'll get released to go outside. 
it's important to me that I have all of these things and I could certainly calm them all down. And that was kind of in quotations with corrections and punishment because they'd behave less. Or I can choose to say, I understand motivation. And so I'm going to channel the motivators towards the behaviors that I want to see. And when those behaviors don't exist, I'm going to train those behaviors and I'm going to make a plan to train them. And so to recap, the ways that we can feel empowered by positive reinforcement are that we understand motivation better. We understand management's strengths and limitations and that it's not a cop-out. And we understand that this isn't about what we have permission to do. It's about the best tools for the job. And it's about the fact that positive reinforcement paired with environmental management is the path to a peaceful life and a peaceful household with your dog. And so feeling empowered by that and knowing that all behavior is modifiable with the right tools and that if you don't know the answer, you can reach for somebody who does Um, those are ways that I hope you can feel more empowered by your knowledge rather than limited by it. All right, I've got some patron questions for you. First one is from Brittany Wingfield, and Brittany says, can we talk more about information gathering sessions? I had a session the other day, and I left with like 8 million ideas and needed to wrangle that shit in. How do you pick which option is likely to yield the best results without wasting time down a fruitless road? So Brittany is referring to my um, previous podcast where I talked about information gathering sessions, and I kind of mentioned it in passing. So an information gathering session is basically the first session of any training task. I go out and I try out a few of my ideas. I film everything. I don't let it go too long. And then I go in and I decide which path I'm actually going to take. So the most important thing here is record keeping and data. So if you have an information gathering session and you didn't film it and you don't have a way of knowing for sure what was working and what isn't, and you're just kind of going on gut, then your information gathering session probably wasn't worth that much to you. How you can make it really pack a punch is that you go out and you go, okay, I'm going to try three different things. And then I'm going to break down the data on the session and I'm going to look at whether or not it worked or not, and which one worked and which one had the best success. So um, for instance, I had an information gathering session with Felix on teaching the dumbbell retrieve. And I messed around a little bit with um, shaping the retrieve from the ground versus also from my hand versus a completely different third approach. And then I broke it down and looked at the success of each. And because I was kind of quickly transferring through, kind of switching through each one, um, I don't believe that the reinforcement history of the previous try was affecting the next try, although it could have been. And from there went with um, the on the ground approach because that had the most approximations towards what I'm actually looking for in that session. I may do an additional information gathering session with him where I test it against maybe one other thing and just kind of see what it looks like. So information gathering sessions are planned for me and deliberate for me. It sounds, Brittany, like you had a session where you just got a bunch of ideas and now you need to pare those ideas down. So what I would encourage you to do is write out all of your ideas, maybe use a whiteboard, 
and then kind of look at pros and cons of each and decide which idea to go with for what, you know, for what session or for what behavior. And then again, keep the data and figure out if that is working for you. So my next question is from Christine McPhee, and she says, I have a question about teaching discrimination tasks in agility. How do we set up training to do this as close to error-free as possible? And then she goes on to say that she's kind of struggling with this and that her dog will basically revert to the thing that got reinforced on the last rep. So whatever happens first is what the dog decides is happening, and um, the dog can be very persistent. And you know, she doesn't want to just withhold a bunch of error and continue to ask the dog for something that he clearly doesn't understand. And she's really smart to be thinking about this. And so I will say, first of all, that too often in agility, the first time we ever ask our dogs to discriminate is when it comes to equipment. So we have a tunnel next to a dog walk and we suddenly want one of them and not the other. And we didn't ask the dog how to solve that puzzle in any other situation that was easier for us to control because let's say you cue the dog to take the dog walk and the dog goes in the tunnel well that was pretty much a wasted rep because the dog chose the tunnel and speaking speaking as a person who has had sessions where the dog just took the tunnel again and again and again without ever getting on the dog walk I understand how frustrating it can be and um, it can be really tough. So I would encourage you to introduce the dog to different discrimination tasks first. My favorite being uh, to do with reinforcers. So I wanna ask the dog to first take a treat from my hand versus the ground or from a bowl versus the ground. And the, these should be equal value foods um, to begin with. And then from there, you know, I'm gonna build up to the dog taking food when I ask him to, even though a toy is available and vice versa. And then when my dog can do that, then I'm gonna to start to talk to him about discriminating equipment. And again, I'm gonna ask for the equipment instead of the reinforcer or vice versa. So I'm gonna use the reinforcer against the equipment to begin with, as opposed to just two pieces of equipment because I can control the reinforcer better than I can control the equipment. And then if the dog's still struggling, you have to really look hard at your stimulus control and understand whether you have effectively put this on verbal cue or not. Usually we have not. Usually in agility, our body motion towards a thing cues the thing, which is why then obstacle discrimination can be hard for us because our body is moving towards both things at once. So have a hard look, um, look squintily, as my fit friend Amy Cook likes to say, at your... Um, stimulus control process, make sure that those things are actually on cue. And then I would just make the discrimination easier. Put the tunnel really far away until the dog gets the A-frame right um, and move the things closer and closer and closer together so that you see that verbal cue happening. But honestly, if you get some solid discrimination on reinforcers, this won't be as big of an issue for you. And then finally, I've got a ton of people asking me to talk about the dog that's pushing buttons to say what he wants. People are asking, is this like a start button? Could we ask the dog to push a, push a literal button that means I'm ready to go? Um, they're asking, you know, is this, is this really about language? What is this about? And my humble opinion on this is that, you know, and if you haven't heard it, it's basically the dog pushes a button that indicates a thing. 
So the dog wants cheese, it pushes, pushes the cheese button. The dog wants outside, it pushes the outside button, things like that. Understand that this is all just about operant conditioning. This is all just about positive reinforcement. If the dog learns green button gets me cheese, then the dog will push the green button when cheese um, is what he wants. If the dog learns that the red button gets him outside, he will push the red button when he wants to go outside. This is the exact same concept as the start button. And no, I would not train the dog to use an actual button because that's just an extra thing for you to have. There is no power that the button wields that the dog doesn't already have. Um, you know, the dog is doing the exact same thing. When Iggy comes into the kitchen and sits and looks at me, it means give me a piece of what you're cutting on the cutting board, lady. Obviously, that's what that means. And because it has worked for her enough times, because I think she's cute and I also worship the ground she walks on, so I give her whatever she wants, um, she keeps doing it. They're just going to keep doing, they, they start to understand very, very well what behaviors by what consequences. My start button idea concept for agility in particular, especially, is about the dog doing a behavior that it knows buys him agility. If the dog doesn't understand that the start button buys agility, then the dog, then the start button does not work for you. And too many of my clients feel that the start button is not working because their dog won't do it when actually the start button's working exactly how it's supposed to, the dog is refusing agility. And so my word of caution is, don't give them a voice if you aren't gonna actually listen to their voice. And do understand that all of this is just operant conditioning principles at work. Um, it's not magic. Thank you so much for your questions, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.